All aboard the MBIT podcast with Seamus Madan. Welcome everyone back to another episode of the MBIT podcast and I'm your host Seamus Madan. Today we're going to be talking about eyewear and to do that we have a very special guest Neil Blumenthal, the co-founder and co-CEO of Warby Parker. Warby Parker, for those of you who don't know, is a retailer of prescription eyeglasses, sunglasses, and even contacts that offer high-quality products at an affordable price. Plus, for every pair of glasses sold, a pair of glasses is distributed directly to somebody in need. So far, that's over 13 million pairs and counting. Neil, absolutely love what you're doing at Warby Parker. Thanks so much for joining. It's a pleasure to have you on. Thanks for having me. So I first want to start off with where you grew up, which was in New York City. During that time, a food dehydrator was actually what started your spirit for entrepreneurship. Could you tell us a little bit more about that? Sure. So yeah, growing up in in New York, I feel like you're just surrounded by energy and entrepreneurship just seems to be in in all places. I was watching <laughs> an infomercial and it was they were trying to sell a, a food dehydrator and the whole idea is that if you sold this if you purchase this food dehydrator in the next like 5 minutes you got a free dialomatic slicer and it was one of those things that you know they just keep pushing you to to buy it and you have the clock sort of counting down on the screen and with this food dehydrator you could do all these amazing things you could dry fruit you could make beef jerky you could do a million different things and my idea was to sort of create a a, a, a dried fruit stand in the middle of Manhattan and needless to say I don't know if it was the best idea but I sort of ran around the apartment sort of begging my parents if I could borrow the $49.99 plus the like $12.99 for shipping and handling to get this food dehydrator. And I get it in the mail and it's this really crappy device that's basically just plastic trays with a heat coil and a fan. And it would take something like four days to turn grapes into raisins. <laughs> so needless to say, my short career in dried fruit wasn't highly lucrative. Did you give it a shot on the street or had it, it took too long? I think it even took too long just even trying to make like banana chips or dried apples. It just <laughs> it yeah. didn't work well. And but, you I, know, but I still have the dialmatic slicer. And you know, that kind of translates into the same type of spirit you had later when you studied over at Tufts University. You studied international relations and history, which is where you got your bachelor's degree. You said you also had the goal to change the world. For me, changing the world is also kind of a similar goal that I have. And it's not only the legacy, but also just to have an impact on people's lives. Because I think every single person in the world is put here for a reason. But for you personally, why was changing the world so important to you? I, I think it was just instilled into me by my parents to try and and do good in the world. My mom was a nurse, actually, very early on. I would just see how she would care 
for patients, whether I went and visited her in the in the hospital or whenever a family member or a friend was sick, she'd always be the first to respond and go with somebody to the hospital if they were having surgery, for example. So she really led by example. And probably the most extreme example was there was a shootout at my little league game and a man was shot three times and she was the first one to run and and help this person while the gunman was running in the opposite direction she was running towards the 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 victim and literally sort of helped stop the bleeding while the ambulance got there you know i sort of saw her there completely covered in blood, but she was somebody that continues to react and respond to to serve and help others. So I think that was very formative for, for me. And going to college in Boston, going to Tufts University, which is known for international relations, one of the ways that I thought maybe I'd be able to create positive change is to understand the way that countries and governments interact. And one idea was, hey, if I could work to help resolve deadly conflicts, resolve wars, maybe we could focus on the big things like health and education. So after college, I went and worked at a think tank that came up with policies to resolve deadly conflict. That I realized wasn't necessarily for me. I found it intellectually interesting, but uh, it just wasn't, I think, the exact type of work that I wanted to be doing. Like you had to really focus on a particular region or a country, then to actually enact change, you'd have to convince the power brokers where generally were government officials to, you know, take a certain set of actions. And I guess I wanted to be the one making the decisions as opposed to recommending certain decisions to be made. Thank you for sharing. That kind of brings us up to what you did over at Vision Spring. So there you had a direct impact on communities, which was a nonprofit providing glasses to people in developing countries. Could you share a little bit more about that experience? Sure. So a family friend introduced me to her eye doctor. Her eye doctor had this idea to train low-income women in parts of the world where people were living on less than $4 a day to start their own businesses, giving vision screenings and, and selling glasses. And I thought this was a really interesting idea. First, there's about a billion people on the planet that don't have access to glasses. And that's just crazy, right? Glasses were invented 800 years ago. So we're failing as a species when a billion people don't have access to a product that was invented 800 years ago. And then I thought that it was a particularly sort of smart solution here to train people to start their own businesses to solve this problem because you needed to solve it at scale. And to do that, you want to create economic incentive for people to solve the problem. And by having local members of a community make money providing glasses to people in need, that would create sort of a sustaining feature to, to the model right in traditional philanthropy right for every dollar you give you need to go at and raise another one if we were able to create a market-based solution where folks were getting paid to to serve someone then this could be sort of more self-sustaining and create sort of a a, a permanent permanent positive solution. So I thought that that was really intriguing. And I moved down to El Salvador to work on the pilot program. I was actually living at one point in an eye clinic and then going to these rural areas in rural El Salvador to train folks to start to give vision screenings and to sell glasses for a couple dollars in, in their communities. 
And the thing that I observed was just the power of a pair of glasses to transform someone's life, right? If somebody needs a pair of glasses and they haven't had it and they put on that pair of glasses, the the impact is immediate and you see a smile sort of emerge ear to ear. And similarly, that individual that's providing the vision screening, that's selling that pair of glasses, and they have a certain sense of self-worth that they're giving back to their community and they're now earning an income that they can support their their family. So it was just incredibly rewarding. And it was also challenging. I mean, I had to figure out, right, how to source glasses for people living on less than $4 a day, figure out how to train folks, how to, you know, get community members to trust that the person giving them the vision screening and selling them glasses knew what they were doing. Because you imagine that you've grown up next to somebody and nobody in your community has glasses. And then suddenly this person next to you, your neighbor has, you know, been trained to to provide glasses and you sort of say, hey, like you didn't go into the capital city. You didn't go to college. How did you learn to do this? So that was almost like a marketing challenge. And we started to realize, oh, well, we should create training certificates. So when someone graduates from the training program, they have a certificate and they can show that to their neighbor. When they're in the training program, we can put a banner outside their home that says, you know, vision advisor in training. And these were some of these strategies that I was learning through this work at the nonprofit Vision Spring were sort of like grassroots marketing, so to speak. And it was a very entrepreneurial experience where I was touching every aspect of a traditional business. You had product development, sourcing, you know, transportation and supply chain. You had marketing and training and dealing with, you know, people challenges and, and HR. And I ended up taking this program from a pilot in El Salvador to now it's in over 40 countries, set up programs in India and Bangladesh, and just learned a ton over a five-year period doing that. Yeah. And you were there for five years. You mentioned it was incredibly rewarding. What made you decide to leave and focus on the next stages of your career, which in this case was going and getting your MBA from Warden? I think I found after five years, my learning curve started to plateau a bit. And I'm somebody that wants to be constantly learning and, and getting better at everything that, that I do. And as I started to think about what my next step would be, what I found was a lot of folks, I think, undervalued and underappreciated sort of a nonprofit background. Um, and I thought that going to business school, number one, I could formalize some of the things that I was learning working at Vision Spring, but also it would give me a credential. And especially going to a school like Wharton, arguably the, the best business school in, in the world, and having that credential that said, hey, this guy knows business would help position me well for, for my next job. Gotcha. And when you eventually were at Warden, one of your professors that you have met was Adam Grant. And he had the idea when you and Dave came up to him, the idea for selling glasses online. He said it was pretty ridiculous and it wasn't going to work. At the time, you also participated in the Wharton business plan competition, but also didn't win. And to a lot of people being told no, it could actually be demoralizing. How did you use being told no as a motivation later to now build a billion plus dollar company? And how do you think maybe other entrepreneurs can use being told no or being faced with rejection as motivation for them? 
Yeah, I think the what makes successful entrepreneurs successful is they identify problems and then find solutions for those problems. So if somebody told us that, you know, Warby Parker was a bad idea, then we would ask them why, and then try and get at the root of what, why they thought it was a bad idea and then come up with ways to solve for that. So as an example, when we initially had the idea, it was, we're going to sell glasses online. And this was back, we started working on Warby Parker sort of the concept in 2008, we launched it in 2010, but in 2008, there weren't really any, nobody was selling glasses online. Now, a bunch of other categories were moving online and doing so very successfully, whether it was Zappos selling shoes or Blue Nile selling engagement rings and footwear and jewelry were two sort of categories that folks thought could never be sold online. Meanwhile, now it seems so obvious. Yeah, of course you sort of can can buy that over the internet. But what we heard from friends and family and, and folks that we trusted was, hey, I don't know if I'd buy glasses online because I need to try them on first. So when you hear, hey, this is a dumb idea, that's not really helpful. When you hear, hey, I don't think it will work because I want to try on glasses before buying them, that is helpful because that's specific and that's a problem that we can work to solve. And that actually led us to sort of brainstorm, how do we solve for this issue of trying on? And we thought, okay, well, is there technology in which somebody could do a virtual try on, right? And either upload their photo and virtually try on glasses, or maybe could you do it sort of live? At the time, there wasn't great technology and there wasn't also great hardware that enabled somebody to, to do sort of great sort of virtual try on. So we were actually with the technology that was available, we were experimenting and actually you had to hold up a credit card with the magnetic strip. So that way you had a reference point. So you knew sort of what the distance on someone's face was so you could fit properly a pair of glasses to one's face. And when we experimented with that, we found that it, customers didn't like it because it it didn't look real and it gave them less confidence of buying. So we went back to the drawing board and came up with this idea um, to ship people five pairs of glasses. They'd have five days to try it on at home for free. If there was a pair that they liked, at that point, we would put in prescription lenses and ship it to them. And this was sort of our home try-on program, which has been wildly successful. And I think it's one of the reasons that Warby Parker was successful from the get-go. Now, we wouldn't have sort of come up with that idea if we didn't get that sort of feedback at, at the very beginning. Yeah, it's a great point. You also had like a try on where you could order five glasses delivered to your house for free, try the glasses, see which one fits best, and then you pay for the pair that you want to pick. How did you develop the model around that? And why did you decide that that was the best model to build the online glasses business from? You know, at Warby, we always say that like, the customer comes first and we want to do everything to make shopping for glasses and contacts a, as easy as possible. And trying on is certainly something that's in, important. We wanted to eliminate all barriers 
to to shopping with us and to purchasing with us. So, you know, enabling somebody to try on five pairs of glasses for free, right, versus charging them, right, that eliminates barriers to to, to purchasing. And we just want to make things as easy as possible, as seamless as possible for our customers. One thing that's been our our guiding sort of metric is net promoter score, which is a measure of customer satisfaction. Basically, Bain and company did a ton of work over the last you know, few decades on what is the best way to measure customer satisfaction. And what they found was the best question to ask is, how likely are you to refer this product or service to the friend? And if on a scale of zero to 10, and if you're you know, an eight, nine or 10, you're a promoter. If you're a six or a seven, you're sort of neutral. If you're five or below, you're actually a detractor. So your net promoter score is basically the percent of folks that are promoters minus de- detractors. And we want to make sure everybody has a, such an amazing experience with Warby Parker that they're telling their friends about us. And our net promoter score has been around 80 since inception. And when we look at sort of the broader optical category, what we find is that most optical retailers are in the 20s. So the fact that our net promoter score is so much higher, we deliver so much greater value and a greater customer experience. And to put that in context, you know, airline, the airline industry tends to be in the 20s or, or, or below. So it's a great category for us to be in when we're able to deliver such a better customer experience. I think customer experience is key for the forefront of businesses, especially in the long term. Now, I think to truly understand the problem with the current glasses industry before you guys disrupted it, it's important to understand how it was previously done. And I think to do that, we first have to understand Luxottica, which is one of the major domination players in the eyewear industry. They currently own a lot of brands, including Ray-Ban, Oakley, and partners with many other brands. But not only do they own brands in the manufacturing but they also own the stores like Sunglass Hut, Lens Crafters, and I believe Sunglass Hut is actually one of the largest sunglass stores in the world. There was actually a dispute with them and Oakley uh, over pricing a while back since Oakley wouldn't comply with Luxottica's super high pricing standards. So Luxottica's like, hey, you don't want to keep your glasses at this high of a price. We'll remove you from our stores. When that happened, Oakley's like, oh, shoot, we just lost a whole bunch of our sales. Their stock plummeted, and Luxottica just ended up buying them out because it was either that happens or they die. So they forced the sale, but they have so much power in this industry, and they can keep prices up to 20 times the cost what it makes to produce the glasses. How difficult was it to enter a market where there was such a big monopoly in the industry, and how did you overcome the challenges there? Yeah, I think when you have really large incumbents, you have to understand sort of what's their business model, what are their strengths, and how do you sort of navigate around them? So for us, it was important that we have our own brand, right? We're not licensing some other fashion brand, right? Luxottica makes a lot of their money by licensing big fashion names like Prada or Dolce Gabbana. And right, they sell those glasses out of their stores like Lens Crafters. And so we were going to design glasses under our own brand. Then we were going to sort of partner with factories that we had to make sure that weren't owned 
by Luxottica or weren't primarily selling to Luxottica because then at any point, Luxottica just could tell the factory, hey, stop stop selling to, to Warby Parker, stop you know manufacturing their, their designs. And then similarly, you have optical labs where you cut lenses, insert them into the frames, ship them to customers. You know, we've built our own optical labs, so that way we can control that process. It helps us maintain high quality standards, get product to customers fast. And also we find when we do things ourselves, we're able to do it at cheaper costs than than when others do it. And then, of course, building our own website and our own stores enabled us to control our distribution and control the relationship with the customer because it would be really hard right now to launch your own brand of eyewear and not sell through some of Luxottica's channels, right? If you're not selling through Lens Crafters or Pearl Vision or Sunglass Hut, right? Those are some of the biggest, you know, optical chains in, in the country. I mean, they're all owned by Luxottica. And when you first started Warby Parker, one of the first criticisms that you guys face is that you are also going into a summer internship at the time. A lot of people may think of business as very binary, like either you do it or you don't, like there's no in between. How confident were you that Warby Parker was going to work? And if you were confident that it was, why did you decide to continue a summer internship? Yeah, so I think there's this misperception that entrepreneurs are these crazy risk takers. And we focus on these very few stories of somebody that dropped out of school, like Mark Zuckerberg to, you know, build their, their company. And I think great entrepreneurs are actually really good at managing risk, not necessarily taking crazy risks. So often I think about if I am standing on a cliff, right? I, and I need to get to the bottom. I can either jump off the cliff or I can take a step back and look for an easier way to get down the hill. <laughs> and I prefer not to jump off a cliff, especially if I don't know what how high it is and whether there are rocks at the bottom or, or what have you. So with Warby Parker, what we wanted to do was de-risk a lot of the business before we invested all of our life savings and before we gave up sort of any other job opportunities. So first of all, we were working on it while we were at business school. So it wasn't like we had to quit our jobs in order to work on the business plan. We were making good progress on the business plan, but I decided to get an internship at McKinsey because, you know, when you're in the middle of a business plan, you don't know if the business is going to work. You don't know if you're going to be able to raise capital. And I only had one shot to graduate business school and to get a new job. So I wanted to make sure that I was best positioned to graduate, you know, business school with a job. So I took that summer internship at McKinsey and would basically be working these long hours with McKinsey. And then at night would be working on Warby Parker along with my co-founders, you know, Dave, Jeff, and, and Andy. Right? We'd be having calls at 11 o'clock at night, at, at midnight. And it wasn't until probably halfway through right the, our, our second year of our MBA program that, you know, we were ready to launch Warby Parker. I actually had an offer to go to McKinsey once I graduated, but we launched Warby Parker in February of, of 2010 and the company took off like a rocket ship. 
We hit our first year sales targets in two weeks, sold out of our best-selling styles in four weeks, had a wait list of tens of thousands of, uh, of people. And it was clear that we had some traction here. So it was at that point that I sort of went to McKinsey and said, hey, you know, I've got this opportunity here. It doesn't look like I'm going to be able to join the firm, you know, and, and once I graduate. And to their credit, they were incredibly kind and supportive. And they said, listen, you have this amazing opportunity. Even if you didn't want to pursue it, we would tell you, you have to, you know, it will give you a year. And if you want to still come and work for us in a year, you'll have the job. Um, and, you know, that was really kind of them. Of course, Warby Parker ended up doing super well, so I didn't have to, you know, take their offer, but it was really nice of them. On the show, we've interviewed a lot of entrepreneurs and not always, but sometimes there's this inflection point out of nowhere where their business might just spike or they create new business and it spikes off pretty quickly through this exponential growth curve. And I've had entrepreneurs message me and ask me like, hey, I know that this happens, but why does it happen? Yeah, it... You know, there's some sort of catalyst when you hit sort of product market fit. For us, there was a few things that I think we got right. One was our price point, charging $95 for a product that would typically cost four or $500, right? Those are, you know, high quality acetate frames with polycarbonate prescription lenses with anti-reflective coating, anti-scratch coatings, impact resistance, and you know, that I think really resonated with consumers. Similarly, it was novel that we were selling glasses online. So that's something that people want to talk about. Third, it was novel that we had this home try-on program where people could select five frames, we ship it to them free of cost. You know, I think it was also novel um, that we had this great brand that stood for fun, creativity and and doing good in the world and that we were distributing a pair of glasses for every pair that we sold. And the name Warby Parker, I think, encapsulated that. But it also sounded familiar to folks, even though they had never heard it before. And that's ideally what you want with a name. So I remember when we were sort of coming up with a name for the brand, we had our brand architecture and we went through 2000 different names. And it was when Dave walked into a New York Public Library exhibit and there were these unpublished journals of the writer Jack Kerouac and two of his characters were Warby Pepper and Zag Parker. And we were like, oh, that's really interesting. And, you know, we were attracted to Kerouac because he was a very influential writer, particularly, you know, in in the countercultural revolution in the US and and in the 60s. And we had a strong sort of social ethos as as a, as a company or that we intended to. And there was that link between vision and reading and writing and right you often associate sort of writers right with with glasses. So you know getting characters from a writer like Kerouac sort of made sense. And we took the name Warby Parker and we surveyed our friends and we asked them a few questions. We asked them, hey, what's your gut reaction to this? Positive, negative or neutral? Second, you know, does this remind you of anything? And what we found was overwhelmingly people had a neutral or positive reaction to the name Warby Parker. And then in terms of are there any known associations, most of them said, no, you know, I don't really sort of it doesn't remind me of anything, but it does sound familiar. And that's also sort of like perfect for a name because you have this, you know, blank canvas 
to sort of paint the picture of your brand, but also the fact that it had some level of familiarity. And so, you know, that I think really benefited us. And, you know, we recognized we were launching, yes, it was a health product in glasses, they help you see, but it's a fashion accessory, right? It's a core to someone's identity. It's often the first thing that somebody sees because it's right on, on your face. So we wanted to launch in the fashion press to have credibility as a lifestyle brand. And we were able to get press and GQ and, and Vogue, and that helped raise awareness from the get-go and really helped jumpstart the business. You started raising awareness through selling these glasses online. You now have over 140 stores in the United States and Canada, and actually 60% of your sales are now currently from in-store locations. Why did you see it as so important for the growth of the brand to have physical stores? So we were never so dogmatic that it was e-commerce or nothing. What was important to our business model was having direct relationships with our customers, right? If we were sort of designing and manufacturing the glasses ourselves and selling them direct to customers, then there was no middleman, right? There was nobody that we were wholesaling the glasses to that then worked out of a store and marked them up three to five X. And that was why we were able to charge $95 instead of four or $500. So, you know, a website enabled us to have a direct relationship with customers. Well, stores, as long as they're owned and operated by us, right, also enable us to have a direct relationship with our customers. There's no middleman and we can maintain those low prices. So, you know, what we found was when we launched the website and the company took off really quickly, we ran out of inventory for our home triumph program and people started to call our 1-800 number and email us and say, hey, you know, I want to try on glasses, but you're out of inventory. Can we come into your office? And at the time we were working out of my apartment. Um, So we invited some folks to come into the apartment. We put the glasses on my dining room table. We moved a mirror close by. We took my co-founder Dave's laptop and set it up so people could, you know, check out through our website. And at first we only invited five customers just as a test thinking like, Hey, if this is too weird of an experience, we're only going to destroy the brand in the eyes of, of five people. But I remember one of those five people was wearing scrubs. It turns out they were a doctor at the nearby hospital, and he checked out with an email address from that hospital. Well, sure enough, a week later, we had, you know, 10 orders from people with email addresses from that hospital. And what it was, was a unique experience that that person then told all their sort of work colleagues about. So the brand was growing through word of mouth. So when we finally moved into an office, we made sure that we got an office that was centrally located, that was near mass transit, that was easy for customers to come. And we actually dedicated about a third of the office to be a store, to be sort of a showroom. And suddenly we were, you know, on track to do, you know, over a million dollars of sales out of our office. And that gave us the confidence to then open up a pop-up shop. And then that gave us the confidence to open up a permanent store. So this was like another example of how we de-risked opening up stores because stores are major commitments. You often are signing a multi-year lease. You're spending a lot of money to build it out. So we really want to know that stores were going to be successful before we sort of made those sorts of financial commitments. 
And one of the best ways you did that was actually by traveling around in a school bus to determine the best cities or locations to set up these stores and sell the glasses. You mentioned it was a unique experience for that doctor, and that's why you shared it with maybe his other colleagues. How do you translate that experience into the stores that you currently have? We spent a lot of time observing how people buy glasses and also thinking about our own experience going into an optical shop. And typically, before Warby Parker, we hated going into optical shops. You walk in, the glasses are in a glass display or behind the counter out of reach. It's a very guided experience. And, you know, if you're like me, you just want to like grab some glasses and try them on. We also found that a lot of these optical shops had really small mirrors. So when we were designing our first store, we're like, okay, well, we want the glasses out on shelves that can easily be grabbed so people can try them on on their own. We want them at eye level so they're easier to see. We want the store to be well lit. We want full length mirrors versus those small sort of vanity mirrors. And again, that just was different because we were looking at the experience with fresh eyes. You know, sometimes it takes somebody from outside an industry to sort of reinvent it. Those are some great points. When we look at the future of the glasses industry, I know back in the day, it used to be thought of if you have glasses, you're a nerd, or it was like kind of out of the ordinary for you to have glasses. But it eventually translated into more of a fashion statement later on. What do you think is next for glasses? Well, unfortunately for the world, but fortunately for our business, more and more people need glasses. And by 2050, 50% of the world's population will need glasses or contacts in order to see properly. Wow! Uh, and that's because we're all spending a lot more time inside. We're focused on objects, right, in our near vision versus in, in the distance. And that's leading to an increase in incidence of, of refractive error that's solved with glasses and contacts. So the future for the category is quite bright and that sort of need and demand will constantly be increasing and it'll be sort of more likely that your friend, your neighbor, your family member needs glasses than, than, than doesn't. My hope is that, you know, we influence our sort of competitors to deliver even better customer experiences and also hopefully influence them to give back more to the community. You know, with that increase in demand, there's going to be increased need of folks that can't afford glasses. So, you know, our buy a pair, give a pair program that we've now distributed over 13 million pairs of glasses to people in need around the world, you know, that's still a drop in the bucket that there's a billion people on the planet that need glasses. So my hope is that this draws more attention and more resources to solving this issue. You know, one thing that I take a lot of pride in is that we've partnered with the city of New York to go into New York City public schools. And the public school system in New York City is the largest in the nation, 1.1 million students. And we partner with the city to give vision screenings to every kindergartner and first grader. If they need a comprehensive eye exam, they receive one. If they need glasses, they get glasses from us that were designed by our designers that are made in our optical labs to ensure that they're getting glasses that look good, that are great quality, and that ultimately they're going to wear and that will result in the sort of educational outcomes that, that we seek. 
We actually did a three-year longitudinal study with Johns Hopkins to see what the impact of glasses was on reading and math scores. And what we found was that a pair of glasses was the equivalent of three months of additional schooling. That's one of the most effective educational interventions in the world, more effective than computers in classrooms, than extending the school day, than private tutoring. So we think we can have real impact by providing glasses to students in in schools that don't currently have access to them. You mentioned that number that 50% of the world population is going to need glasses by 2050. With technology like AR and VR, where we have screens so close to our face, do you think that will just accelerate the problem? You know, that's a good question. Potentially, you know, I, I'm not an eye doctor. I play yeah. one on TV. Oh, no, just kidding. But yeah, the more that humanity spends sort of indoors and on screens, the, the more refractive error we're, we're going to see. And going forward, now that we begin to wrap it up here, what are your takeaways? Maybe for entrepreneurs, especially beginning entrepreneurs or first-time entrepreneurs in the audience. I think the key takeaways for entrepreneurs is identify a problem, come up with a solution, and then test every aspect of that solution and really be focused on the customer What's going to make the customer happy? What customer problems are you actually solving? And sort of try to prioritize, right, how you're tackling that problem by what's most important to to the customer. So again, in our case, it was, you know, buying glasses was a clunky, negative experience that was incredibly overpriced. So how do we solve that? Let's make it an easier, seamless experience and sell glasses at a fraction of the price. And in particular, right, trying on glasses is so important to folks. So how do we ensure that we're able to, to do that properly? Um, and as I mentioned, right, our home try-on program enabled us to do that early. Now we've developed the first of its kind true-to-scale virtual try-on that you know also works great. And folks thanks to sort of the iPhone's TrueDepth camera, right? Folks have the hardware in their pocket that enables them to, you know, do that virtual try-on. You know, similarly, we now have a virtual vision test that you can do a vision test remotely through your iPhone and get a new glasses or contacts prescription. So that's exciting. So, you know, we'll keep hammering away at making the customer experience better and better and better. And that's the key to success for any entrepreneur is to just serve their customers better and better. Totally agree. I think keeping the customer or at this case, the audience at the forefront is definitely one of the most important traits for long-term success in entrepreneurship. Well, all right, everyone, that wraps it up for today's episode. We'll have a link to Warby Parker and you can check them out in the episode description down below. And if you enjoyed this interview, please share it with your friends. We're on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, anywhere you can look us up and look up my name and it'll show up. So greatly appreciate you, Neil, for taking the time to join the show. It was a pleasure to chat and uh, thanks for coming on. Thank you. Pleasure to chat with you.